Hey, this is Pastor Allen. I'm the lead pastor here at First Baptist Church of Naples, and we are so happy that you have chosen to join us as we go through God's Word together. God's doing some amazing things here, and we pray that God's Word will transform you from the inside out. Our mission here is to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ of all peoples. And our hope is, is that you are being a disciple that makes disciples. Now, if you don't have a church home, we would love for you to join us either in person or continuing online as we go into God's Word together every week. But if you are a member of another church, we don't want this to be in any way, shape, form, or fashion a substitute for you being connected to your local body. So our prayer is, is that God uses His Word to change you and to change others. So we pray that God will use you and this message for His glory. Have a great day. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. Let's stand as we read God's Word. Mark chapter 4. In verse 35, uh, <clears throat> John Mark writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, On that day, when evening had come, Jesus said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took Jesus with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they awoke him, or woke him, and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and sea obey him. You may be seated. How many of you uh, struggle with worry? Um, if we're honest, we all do. Uh, for those who say they don't, maybe you'll go home and worry about that. <laughs> we worry about our future, our families, our finances, our, our health our happiness. We live in anxious days. Anxiety is a big issue in our culture. Anxiety is probably best defined as living out the future before it gets here. The recent storm has probably been one of the worst natural disasters to hit Southwest Florida in years, if not a century or two. And it's caused a lot of worry, a lot of fear. But I want you to understand that we know, living in southwest Florida, that there's always a potential for storms. We knew that when we moved here. But whether there's a storm in the Gulf or the Atlantic, we, we know that just living normal lives, we go through storms. Not physical weather storms, but crises and struggles and situations. We, we all have storms that come up sometimes weekly or monthly or every now and again. As a matter of fact, it's been said that we constantly live in one of three categories. We either are in a storm, coming out of a storm, or heading into a storm. So the question is this, that when the storms of life hit, where do you turn to and who do you trust in? I mean, the church answer is Jesus. I mean, as a matter of fact, that's the answer to everything in church, right? Jesus. But often when the storms of life hit, those storms tend to reveal 
who Jesus really is to us. Is he the figment of our imagination or is he the Lord of our lives? And it's in the storms of life that what we really believe about Jesus and whether or not we trust him is, is really seen and proved. And, and we're going to see that here in the episode that we just read. Mark, in his gospel, has just moved from the didactic teaching of Jesus in his parable section to now a, a section of teaching on the miracles of Jesus. He's now going to walk us through various miracles that Jesus performed and how the people around him responded to those miracles. In, in these stories, some of the miracles will be public. That means everyone saw them, and some of them are going to be private, only the disciples or those to whom Jesus revealed these miracles to saw them. But as we look in the Gospels, I want you to understand that Jesus didn't just do miracles for the sake of miracles. I mean, if he wanted to, he could have done way more than what we know of, and, and perhaps he did, but yet his miracles weren't just random. They were intentional. Every miracle that Jesus performed teaches something. They teach us who he is and what his kingdom is like. And so as we go through this gospel of Mark, we'll see that the miracles of Jesus both reveal Jesus' identity and they authenticate his heart, his message, and his mission. So each miracle of Jesus is Jesus saying the king and the kingdom have arrived. And so as we go through this next section of scripture in Mark, we, we're going to see that each miracle was a call not just to believe in miracles, but ultimately to trust in Jesus. And in this particular miracle, I hope that you learn this today, that worry and fear flee from our lives when we turn to the power of Jesus and trust in the love of Jesus. When you and I turn to his power and trust in his love, we will see worry and fear melt when the storms of life hit us. And so when the storms of life hit you, number one, you should turn to the power of Jesus. Verse 35, on that day when evening has come, Jesus has spent probably a good six, seven, eight, maybe even 10 hours on a boat teaching the crowds. People from all over the region had swarmed Jesus. Uh, there were so many people they couldn't fit in the house, so many people they couldn't fit in the streets. They had to go out, and Jesus had to launch out on a boat, and the people stand on the beach on the shore to hear him speak. Jesus, after this long day, says to one of his disciples, perhaps Peter or someone else on the boat with him, let us go across to the other side. Jesus and his disciples were in the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee. So if you take the Sea of Galilee and you were to kind of divide it, the west side of the sea was the Jewish side, and the east side of the sea was the Gentile side. Uh, and by this side of the sea would be the ten cities, the Decapolis, which were Roman areas that were known for demons, for pagans, and for pork eaters. And so on this side of the sea, they ate bacon. And we'll see that next week when we look at how pigs fly. Uh, you'll see that next week. Verse 36, he leaves the crowds and they take Jesus. Jesus stayed on the very boat that he was teaching. That was where his lectern was. And he set sail and notice with the other boats. Now, a note Variety here. There's some details that Mark gives us, which prove that this is an eyewitness account. One is that there were other boats with them, and two, where Jesus was when they set sail. Jesus was at the stern of the ship. Now, for those of you who are like me and have no idea what a stern is, it's the back of the boat. 
So Jesus was on a cushion in the back of the boat. He, had, he was exhausted. He had taught all day long, and in his humanity, he was tired. Uh, listen, teaching without a microphone to thousands of people all day long will wear you out. And I have a microphone, and it wears me out. As a matter of fact, I will check my watch when I'm done preaching this service, and I will have burned about twelve to 1,400 calories just running my yapper, Okay. And so it wears you out. I call them preacher wads. They're workouts of the day. Anyway, so you, you have Jesus here is exhausted. And then in the midst of this, verse 37, a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking in on the boat. Now this, this little drive or this little boat ride to the other side was, was very normal. It would be like driving from here to Marco Island or uh, here to uh, Fort Myers. It was something that was not too dangerous. And yet these men on the sea, the Sea of Galilee was seven miles wide, 13 miles long. It sits under, uh, it sits below sea level. It's actually 700 feet below sea level, the entire lake. And it's surrounded by mountains all around. So it's like a big bowl. And to the very north side, a little ways, there's this mountain range. And the mountain, the main mountain peak is Mount Hermon. And Mount Hermon is 9,200 feet above sea level. So about 10,000 uh, feet difference in just a few miles. And what happens is that the cold winds from the mountains clash. They come down to the Golan Heights, clash down with the warm, humid air of the sea, going through the valley of the sparrows. And out of seemingly nowhere, storms arise, just kind of like what we experience here in the summer uh, in the afternoons. And so this storm was not un heard of, but it was an unusual storm. It was unusual in the fact of how it's described. It's, no, it's described here in the English as a great storm, in the Greek, a mega storm. Matthew, when he describes this, uses the word seismic. So this was not a normal storm uh, that these seasoned sailors were used to, but a very violent event that caused the boat that they were in to, to fill with water and the disciples into panic. Now, if you ever go with me to Israel, uh, we will go to Genosar, which is in the north side of the sea. It's a, there's a kibbutz there, and there's also a museum. And in this museum is a, uh, a boat that they found in 1986 underneath the muck of the Sea of Galilee. They restored it. And, and you see, it's not a very big boat. Uh, maybe 12, 15 people snugly could fit in this boat. And so Jesus is in the back of the boat, and he's asleep. It's the only time in the Gospels where it's recorded that Jesus is asleep. And so the storm didn't bother Jesus. Why? Because Jesus controlled the weather. Uh, he owned weather.com. And so, and when he was asleep here, he was not faking. He was genuinely asleep. And so as the winds and the waves and water splashing and the boat is filling uh, up with water and there are maybe tropical storm or hurricane force winds, they wake Jesus up and they say, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Now, Matthew and Luke uh, have the disciples saying different things. Matthew has the disciples saying, Lord, save us. And Luke has the disciples saying, Master, we are perishing. And some will say, well, there's a contradiction. There, the Bible has errors. No, that's not an error. There was a lot of yelling going on that boat. <laughs> and so probably this is Peter, uh, because he's the eyewitness. He's telling us about the cushion that Jesus slept on. He's telling us about the other boats. It's probably Peter and what he said to Jesus. And he says, Jesus, we are about to die. The water is filling the boat and 
You don't seem to care. We're afraid you're asleep. How could you allow this to happen? What are you going to do? And so Jesus, uh, you know, the one thing about Jesus in the Gospels is that Jesus is awake when everyone else is asleep. So Jesus would get up early to pray. Everyone else is sleeping. Jesus prays at the Garden of Gethsemane. The disciples are sleeping. So Jesus is, is awake when everyone's asleep. But then you'll note here that Jesus was asleep when everyone was awake. And what you'll note is that Jesus did not ride the roller coaster of emotions like everyone else did. Jesus was cool, calm, and collected. He did not allow the weather outside to affect his peace inside. Now listen, it's hard to sleep on a boat. But who sleeps on a boat in the middle of a hurricane? Only Jesus. And so verse 39, he wakes up, uh, wipes the sleepy out of his eyes, stands up, rebukes the wind. The word rebuked here is the same word used in Mark chapter 1 in reference to Jesus' rebuke of the demons. You rebuke what is underneath you. And so Jesus rebuked the demons. He rebuked the weather. And he said, peace be still can be and translated, be quiet and stay quiet. And the Allen version, shut up. <laughs> now notice here, he doesn't use an incantation, not a magical wand. He didn't call Harry Potter to get his wand. He's not calling out to a higher power because he is the higher power. And so the wind and the waves cease, and the Bible says there was a great calm. Jesus says the word, and at once the, the storm is stilled and completely calm. He just said the word. You know, when, when Hurricane Ian was going on, um, uh, some of you lost a lot. Some of you went through a lot. Some of you lost electricity, and you had a lot of flood damage and a lot of damage to your house and your roof. And simply by God's grace, we really had very little nothing. We had nothing. It was completely God's grace. But there would be these moments, we didn't even lose electricity, and I know that makes some of you upset. But I, here's the good news. I bought a generator right before, and that pretty much guaranteed I was not gonna lose electricity because I bought a generator. But, but the, the wind would howl, and it would blow hard, and, and the lights would flicker. And in my heart, I was thinking, like, I, is this the day? Is this the moment? Is this going, is now it's over, and the electric's gonna go out, and now I have to eat all that ice cream I just bought. Because Publix, on the, on the day before a hurricane, had buy one, get one free ice cream, right? <laughs> you, what do you think? Do you think they're idiots at Publix? No. And so I was there, and, and I was just like, it would just, the wind one time, I remember it just howled. And I was like, this is it. And so I yelled at it. I said, stop it. <laughs> and you know what happened? Nothing. Nothing. It just kept blowing. See, the ancients believed that the sea and the weather were uncontrollable. Only God could tame it. I mean, the prophets could heal people, but only God could control the weather. According to rabbis, in Jesus' day, anyone who claimed to control the weather or predict the weather would be charged with blasphemy. And so all the meteorologists are blasphemers, you know. But notice here that Jesus, as I said earlier, calmed the storm in his own power and authority. He didn't even pray, Father, make this stop. He did it all by himself. You know, some people will say that they've read the Gospels and that Jesus never claimed to be God. 
But I'll tell you that if you carefully read the Gospels, you'll, you'll find multiple times that Jesus claimed to be God. But if you took the words of Jesus out of the Bible and all you read and saw were the stories of Jesus, what you would see in the stories of Jesus is Jesus doing things that only God can do. And why is that? Because he's God. Now, in this moment, the disciples did what they should have done. In this moment of crisis, they turned to Jesus because they really had no other hope. I mean, when you're going through a storm, a difficulty, a, a horrible situation, the best and only thing you can do is call out to Jesus. He's not an imaginary friend. He's not a lucky charm. He's God Almighty. He is all powerful. He is in time, on time, every time, and there's nothing he cannot do. On Monday, we had a town hall meeting here. We, uh, we were asked to be a host, and, and so FEMA was here. The Small Business Administration was here from the government. Call your county, state officials, insurance officials. Uh, we had a, a county council person here, and we had a, our, our congressman here, and they were answering questions uh, about Hurricane Ian relief. And, and in this, uh, I'm grateful that our church did this. Listen, we always, we are a church in the community, of the community, for the community. This is not a holy bubble where we have holy huddles. This is a place that is a launching pad to reach Naples and the nations. But so we're here and we're hearing stories from our community. People from Lee County, people from Collier County. And we're hearing the horrible conditions in which people in East Naples and, 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 and Fort Myers Beach and on the little islands there of just the horrible conditions. Their homes are completely destroyed and there's mold already growing and muck and people were living in some of those conditions. And then some who were way less fortunate, uh, maybe because of economics or their house completely destroyed, were forced to live in shelters. And these shelters were not the greatest of conditions. There were kids and family members without clothing because they had to flee their home that was completely flooded. Or they didn't have shoes or socks and there was unsanitary condition. People that were homeless before the storm have now invaded the shelters after the storm. And, and obviously we want to love homeless people, so don't take that wrong. But it was a, it was a tough situation. And, and then on top of that, you would hear about people whose houses were, were really d damaged. And according to FEMA and the, and the government and the local government, any house that has over 50% of damage uh, had to be torn down. It was, it's the law. So if you have more than 50%, it's like, even if it's like 50.1%, your house would have to be torn down and have to be rebuilt according to the new codes. And so we're hearing story after story of people who have to tear down their houses and, and it's going to cost them so much more money. Their insurance is only going to pay a fraction and FEMA is only going to provide a fraction of what these people need. And, and so what we've also learned is that before Ian, we had this, but after even we really have is we have a housing crisis in our county. And, and in this area. And so the people, were, it was horrible just hearing their, their hearts and they were crying out to these people on the panel. They said, what are you gonna do? What's FEMA gonna do? What's the government gonna do to help us? How are you gonna save us? And these are very legitimate questions, but I was sitting there in the back thinking, well, you know, the government can only do so much and they can't give you the ultimate answers. Because as powerful as the government is, they don't have the ability to, to restore everything that's destroyed. And so in my heart, I, I wanted to get up and preach. <laughs> and I wanted to say, yes, the government can help, but turn to Jesus. 
Because the government isn't the answer for everything. Why? Because the government spends, but Jesus saves. <laughs> because Jesus, all he has to do is say the word and demons flee. He says the word and diseases are healed. He says the word and disasters are averted. He says the word and darkness hides because Jesus has no rivals. He has no equals. No one can slow him or stop him. When he says it is done, it is done. So when there's something strange in the neighborhood, who are you going to call? Call Jesus. Turn to Jesus. He's here. So when the storms of life happen, turn to the power of Jesus. But secondly, trust in the love of Jesus. Now, why do I say that? Because you can believe God is all-powerful, but you may not believe God loves you. You can believe that God can save you, but you're not sure that he will save you. And so we see here that Jesus deals with that with his disciples. He says in verse 40, after he has calmed the waves and the wind, he says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? See, the disciples rebuked Jesus for sleeping and they thought not caring. Jesus, in his response, rebukes the storm and then he rebukes the disciples. He answers their question with a question. He says, why are you so afraid? This word afraid is not just merely phobos, uh, but, but it's more of a word that describes a disposition of fear. It's not that in this moment they were scared, but they were cowardly. They were freaked out and had lost their minds and they, this was a disposition that they had. Now, Jesus was saying, why? They should have known better. I mean, this isn't the first time they've been with Jesus and Jesus did something miraculous. I mean, again, Mark is not in complete chronological order, uh, but yet we have seen up to this point Jesus do some pretty awesome things. But what we also know that they had been with Jesus for weeks, months, maybe even a year at this moment, and they've seen Jesus exercise demons. They've seen Jesus heal sick people. They've seen Jesus even raise the dead and provide supernaturally. And so they should have known better, but they didn't. And, and we read this and say, yeah, they're idiots. Why didn't they know better? Well, here's the thing. We know something they didn't know. And it's something that scholars call the messianic secret motif. Now, I know that doesn't necessarily bless your heart, but stay with me. Basically, from the very first verse of Mark, we know that this is a story about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We know from the very beginning who Jesus is. But as we're reading this book, in real time, the disciples did not. The disciples thought at best Jesus was a powerful rabbi. They didn't know his full identity yet. See, they thought he was Clark Kent, but he was really Superman, right? And so this boat ride with Jesus was an invitation for them to learn who he was. And so Jesus says, have you still no faith? We've gone through all these things, many things, and I've been with you, and you've watched me move. And basically he's saying, I'm on the boat with you. Why are you afraid? See, on the surface, their fear seemed to be very legitimate. I mean, they thought they were going to die if you're going to be afraid, at least be afraid of that. But Jesus is saying, listen, when I'm with you, when I'm on the boat with you, fear and the fear of death is irrational. See, Jesus was on the boat. God was on the boat. He was not going to let the boat sink. 
And he already told these turkeys, he was taking them to the other side. Trust me, believe in me. See, faith is not just believing that God has done things in the past. Because they would have all said, yeah, we believe that you turned water into wine. We believe that you fed the multitudes. We believe that you healed the leper. They believe that. But faith is not just believing that God has done things in the past. Faith is believing that he will do things for you now and tomorrow. Biblical faith is trusting God with today and tomorrow. It is a now and later faith. And that's why for our church, a church filled with faith will always have a vision for the future of what God can and will do, not just nostalgia of what God has done. See, in this moment, Jesus is, is questioning and telling him this issue, this whole boat ride was about faith. It's about you trusting me. And there are some things that we only learn through storms. Sometimes God sends storms into our lives because those storms are the only way that we will ever learn who he is. One, one person put it this way. They, they said, everyone wants to see miracles in their lives, but no one wants to be in a position where they need one. Everyone wants to see a miracle in their life, but they don't want to be in a position where they need one. But yet, until God puts you in a place where you need his sustaining presence and power, you'll never really experience it. See, Jesus can only show off his miraculous power when we have a problem that needs a miracle. The same guy who said what I said earlier also said that as he has researched the scriptures, he has found that every Bible, every time you see a miracle in the Bible, that miracle started with a problem. See, real faith is not just believing that God can deliver us from the storms of life. Because God does. Do you understand that God protects you from way more stuff than you know? John Piper said that there are 10,000 things that God is doing for us and we might only be aware of three. I mean, think about this. How many things that God has protected you from and provided for you and done for you and kept you safe through? I mean, every time you drive in Naples, you're taking your life in your own hands. You have no idea. So faith is not just believing that God can deliver us from the storms of life, but real faith is believing that he will get you through the storms of life. See, Jesus didn't say it'll all work out. He said, I'm with you. And they thought they were dying, but Jesus knew that they weren't. Why? Because he was there. See, there's something more important than God keeping you from all the storms of life. And that is God teaching you his faithfulness during the storm. See, and they, they, they didn't doubt his power, I don't think. I think they doubted his love. And that's, and how do you know? Because they didn't say, Jesus, can you save us? We're drowning. No. That's not the question that Peter asks. The question Peter asks is this, do you care? See, their lack of faith came from a lack of trust that Jesus cared for them. They interpreted Jesus' nap as a sign that he didn't care. And they were afraid that Jesus didn't love them because if Jesus really loved them, they wouldn't have gone through what they have gone through. That if Jesus, if God really loved me, he wouldn't allow me to suffer. 
I wish that that were the case, but that's not always how God works. His ways are higher than our ways, and none of us in this room that I know really want to suffer. I don't want to suffer. I know you don't want to suffer, but often, sadly, but truthfully and even graciously, God allows us to go through painful moments in our life so that he can show us how much he loves us. Warren Wiersbe said it best when he said, he said, don't get your theology from your circumstances because you may conclude that God doesn't love you. See, sometimes God doesn't move in a situation the way we want him to move or he doesn't move with the speed we want him to move or sometimes God allows us to go through things that make us question everything. And we think our boat is filling up. We're gonna drown. We're overwhelmed. How are we gonna make it? How are we gonna survive? Does Jesus care? And Jesus looks at all of us and says, have you still no faith? Where is your faith? Who are you trusting in? Because I think that Jesus was saying to these guys, if you just knew how much I loved you, you would never have been afraid. Have you ever heard of Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego? If you've been with our Bible reading plan as a church, you just read about them. If you don't know about it, we have one again coming up where you can read through the Bible in a year starting in January. And if some of you fell off the wagon, then a new wagon's coming in January. And we're going to put guardrails around the wagon, okay? But in Daniel chapter 3, the three Hebrew children are there and the king has created a statue and he makes this decree that everyone has to bow down and worship him. And if you don't bow down and worship the statue, then you're going to be a crispy critter. You're going to be in the fiery furnace. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they worshiped God and God alone. And so when, when the moment of crisis came, they said to the king, listen, we believe that our God can deliver us, but if he doesn't, we're still going to trust him anyway. Why and how could they say that? Because even though they knew that God was powerful enough to save them, if he didn't, it didn't mean he didn't love them. And so that's what God wants to teach you and me. Is it through the storm we actually see the love of God more? And some of you in this room, you really know the love of God because you've gone through some really horrible things. What's the response of the disciples? Verse 41. They were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this? This word great is seen again. It's the third time that word is used. Same Greek word, mega. It's a play on words in the Greek. There was a mega storm that then Jesus brought a mega calm and that led to a mega fear. What he's trying to get with this last one, this great fear, is, is, is something to di differentiate between the fear the disciples had during the storm, because what you're going to note here is that the disciples were afraid of the storm, but they were terrified of Jesus. What does that mean? They were in awe of Jesus. Luke and Matthew say that they marveled at Jesus. They feared Jesus. This is not a bad fear. This is a worship fear. This, this word fear is a worship word. You worship what or who you fear the most, and you fear what you worship. And so this mega fear of Jesus of his disciples was, was the right kind of fear of God because here's what you see in it. This fear was a mixture. It was a mixture of awe and intimacy. So the fear of God, a proper fear of God, is a mixture of awe and intimacy. Awe at the sheer, at the sheer power and size of God, 
but intimacy in the fact of what he's done for you. And so these disciples were in awe that Jesus calmed the storm. They were in awe of his power. But they're also in awe of his love because in this intimacy, the God of the universe was on their boat, knew their name and saved their skins. And so as we think in our own lives, we need that fear of God, this awe and intimacy. And as, as, as one man put it, he says, when you have awe without intimacy, it leads to spiritual deformity. And if you have intimacy without awe, it leads to spiritual complacency. See, if you have awe without intimacy, that is you have a, you only see God in terms of he is God and you are not and there is no real relationship with him. And so the only reason you come to church and you do things for God is because you're afraid of God in the sense that if you don't do it, you'll burn and go to hell forever. And that's not the kind of fear of God that, that God desires. It's not just fear, fear. If you have all without intimacy, you have that. But if you have intimacy without all, then you're just lazy and complacent and you're disobedient and you compromise. And so, because you just think, well, he just loves me so I can do whatever I want. And so the Bible teaches that the fear of God is all of who he is and intimacy. See, here's the thing with these disciples. They, when they didn't know who Jesus was, they were afraid of the storm. But when they understood who Jesus was, they were afraid of him. <laughs> See, they would not have been afraid of the storm had they known that Jesus was bigger, better, badder, and stronger than the storm and that he loved them. Heard this illustration once. I thought it was pretty good. Have you ever seen the movie Jurassic Park? In the old version, back in the olden days, when dinosaurs roamed the earth. <laughs> it's a joke. Not a good one. Jurassic Park, anyway. Um, there's a moment in the movie where they're in a, the, the kids are in a dome and uh, the raptors, those velociraptors were surrounding them and they all thought they were going to die. They started panicking. Then all of a sudden, boom, 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 boom. T-Rex comes in and gobbles up the raptors. In that moment, a question went through their mind. Whose side is T-Rex on? Because if T-Rex is on my side, I don't have to be afraid of the raptors, right? See, if T-Rex is on my side, what can the raptors do to me? If T-Rex is for me, who's against me? Right? Well, we know in that moment, T-Rex wasn't for anybody but himself. Well, let me just tell you where I'm going with this. Jesus is the true and better T-Rex. <laughs> he is bigger, badder, scarier, stronger than T-Rex, and he loves you. And you say, he loves me. How do I know? How do I know he loves me? Because I can see that he's all powerful, but how do I know that he loves me? Because my circumstances don't make me feel like I'm feeling the love. Maybe he just loves good people. Maybe the reason that why I'm going through what I'm going through is because I'm not a good person. And so that, is, that means that God doesn't love me. But that's not the truth because these disciples were following Jesus and he took them to a storm. And he went with them. <laughs> and Jesus never promised to keep us from the storms. He just did promise he'd be there with us in the storm. So how do I know that Jesus loves me? So glad you asked. 
Because Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. And we're going to see that in Mark because, stay with me, don't, don't leave. I know it's, it's getting late. I know that the NFL starts at one, so don't, don't worry. There's something deeper here. The story of Jesus calming the, the, the storm was written by Mark, but he wrote it in a, a very intentional way. Scholars, I said, call Mark's writing genius, but we know it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. There's something that Mark does intentionally with the words and the phrases that he uses in this story to intentionally remind and point the listeners and the readers to another story. He intentionally uses words and phrases to point to a prophet in the past who had another incident on the sea, and his name was Jonah. And so the story here of Jesus calming the storm and the sea very much parallels with Jonah and his story. If you're not familiar with it, then I would encourage you to read the book of Jonah. But those of you who are, you'll see the parallels as following. Number one, both Jesus and Jonah were on a boat. <laughs> both were headed to a Gentile region. Both boats were overtaken by a violent storm. Both, Jesus and Jonah, were asleep on the boat during the storm. Both were woken up by sailors who were panicking, thinking they were going to die. And in both Jesus' case and Jonah's case, it required a miraculous divine intervention to calm the sea. And in both instances, that's what happened. Also, in both stories, the sailors were more terrified after the storm than during the storm. So those are the parallels. What, the, what are the differences? Well, one is that Jonah was running away from God's call, and that's why God sent the storm. Here, Jesus was running to God's call. Jonah's story, the people are saved, and he calms the storm by plunging himself into the sea. He said to the sailors, essentially, if I perish, you survive. If I die, you live. Jesus just calmed the storm by speaking to it. Now, other commentators will say that, yes, Jonah said, if I die, you live, happened then, but Jesus did that too, didn't he? As a matter of fact, Matthew chapter 12, verse 41, Jesus says that one greater than Jonah is here. Who's he speaking about? He's speaking about himself. That Jesus is the true and better Jonah. Now, the story of Jonah tells us that Jonah voluntarily plunged himself into the sea to save others. All Jesus in this story did is shout to the winds and the waves. So how is Jesus greater than Jonah? He's greater than Jonah because he did what Jonah could never do. See, on the boat, the storm that hits the disciples was just a foreshadowing that paled in comparison to the ultimate storm that was coming. The storm of God's holy wrath against sinners, sinners like the disciples and sinners like you and me. It wasn't that we were in the cone of uncertainty. We were in the cone of certainty. But instead of you and I drowning and dying in the storm of God's wrath that you and I deserve for the sins that we committed, Jesus plunged himself into the sea and storm of God's wrath. He would die so we could live. So Tim Keller and his book, The King's Cross, says that on the cross, Jesus plunged himself into the storm of God's wrath for sinners so that he could calm all storms and still all waves. At the cross, Jesus destroyed all destruction, broke all brokenness, and killed death once for all that was directly aimed at us. 
he faced the terror and silenced it with his love. See, I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry and from the waters lifted me. Now safe am I. Love lifted me. Love lifted me when nothing else could do. Love lifted me and you. You say, well, why does this matter? Why is this, this parallel there? Why is this there? And why are you pointing this out? And here's why. Stay with me and we'll be done. Think of this in your mind. If Jesus cared so much for me, if he cared that much for me on the cross, if while they were nailing his hands and feet, he didn't bail on us, if he didn't forget about me or forsake me when the waves of God's wrath were coming for me, if he didn't do that then, then he will not forget me now and he will not forsake me in the future. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we have nothing to fear now or later. Because if you know that Jesus did not abandon you in the ultimate storm, then what makes you think he's going to abandon you now? So when you go through the storms of life, turn to the power of Jesus and trust in the love of Jesus. Mark ends this way with this story. He says, the disciples all questioned to themselves, who then is this? that even the winds and the sea obey him. Why would he end with this type of question? Here's why. Because the point of this miracle was not about the storm. The point of this miracle was not about the sailors. It wasn't about the disciples. It wasn't even about you or me. The point of this miracle is ultimately about the Savior, Jesus Christ. And so when you and I know who Jesus is, when we face whatever we face, we do not need to fear because Jesus is here. Because Jesus is king. Because Jesus is our king. And so I don't need to fear. I need to trust. And therefore, in those moments, I turn to his power and trust in his love, regardless of what comes our way. Look to Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel. And thank you for Jesus. And Lord, I know that there are people in this room or watching online that are going through a storm. Not just Hurricane Ian, they're going through other storms. They're, they're going through financial, physical, emotional, relational, personal storms. And just like the lady that I met with and prayed with who was kicked out of her, her house, or was going to be really soon from her landlord. God, I ask that you would supernaturally provide for that woman. And that God, you would see, that she would see in the midst of this storm that you are good and you are God and you love her. But Lord, I know that there are hundreds, dozens, maybe thousands of concerns or fears in this room. So Lord, help us to see 
that not only you can, but you will because you love us. And Lord, whoever's in this room or watching online that doesn't have that relationship with you, God, would you make them so miserable today that they can't help but to give their lives to you. They would call on your name and trust you as Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and let's sing about the one who makes the darkness tremble. Thank you for joining us as we go through God's Word together. I pray again that God will transform you from the inside out. So as we say here at first, you have come to church. Go out and be the church. Have a great week of worship. We can't wait to see you soon.